Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Not a dividend. It's a tale of two clones. Now, your losses are on someone else's balance sheet. Generally speaking, airdrops are kind of pointless anyways. Um, I named trading firms who are very involved. Um, Alec.eth is the ultimate puzzle. DeFi protocols are the antidote to this problem. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Chopping Block. Every couple of weeks, the four of us get together and give the industry insider's perspective on the crypto topics of the day. So first up, we've got Tom, the DeFi maven and master of memes. Next up, we've got Robert, the crypto connoisseur and captain of Compound. Today, we have a special guest, special legal guest joining us, Mark Boyron, who is the blockchain barrister and the chief legal officer at Polygon. And then finally, we've got myself. I'm Haseeb, the head hype man at Dragonfly. The three of us are early stage investors in crypto, but I want to caveat that nothing we say here is investment advice, legal advice, or even life advice. Please see choppingblock.xyz for more disclosures. Uh, Mark, great to have you on the show. Uh, it's been a while. It's been a crazy six months, I can imagine, in the crypto legal profession. How, how, how are you doing? How are you feeling given all the craziness going on? Yeah. Um, first, thanks for having me. It's uh, exciting to be here. You know, I don't know. I, I kind of get pumped by this, to be honest. Like, you know, you look at this and you're like, okay, this is why crypto exists, right? You've got the government coming at you and you Ooh, basically okay. have to respond, right? And like that response needs to be like strong, both on the tech side and on the legal side. And I don't know, that's kind of that's like why we're here. It's fun. It's fun. Okay. So it's, it's kind of like a, a personal injury lawyer seeing like a pileup in the middle of a city. You're like, oh, this is, this is what I got in the game for, baby. Also says the lawyer who works for, you know, an L1, L2 that the government never attacks the L1 and the L2. <laughs> okay, they're, they're attacking an L1 problem. now with BNB. Well, okay, okay. Well, okay. Let's 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 get into it. There's a lot of meat to get through today, and, and we're gonna have a, a several different uh, big topics that we're gonna chew on. So, the three big topics of the day: the first is the SEC versus BUSD. The second big topic is going to be the Kraken uh, staking settlement, uh, and the third is going to be the Uniswap governance drama that we alluded to very briefly on the last show, but that finally reached its you know sort of nominal conclusion uh, in the last few days. So. First, we're going to start with the BUSD shutdown. So I'm going to give some backdrop. There's a little bit of setup for those of you who are not familiar with what's going on here, and then we'll jump into a discussion. So Binance, obviously largest exchange in the world, they issue a stablecoin called Binance USD. It's the third largest stablecoin in existence, $16 billion in issuance, and it's used primarily on the Binance exchange, uh, and it's they've consolidated as being their major stablecoin trading pair. So Paxos is a company based in the US. They work with a bunch of big... Uh, you know, fintechs like PayPal and so on to, to run their crypto for them as a backend. Uh, but their largest business by far was that they issue stablecoins on behalf of other people. And the, the major person on behalf of whom they issue a stablecoin was Binance. So Paxos, they're regulated by the NYDFS, the New York Department of Financial Services, and uh, they were the issuer of BUSD. So they take in dollar deposits, they hold it in a bank account, buy treasuries, do whatever, uh, and then they issue BUSD as their liabilities. Um, and so Paxos had partnered with Binance to issue uh, BUSD. Binance does a bunch of other stuff uh, with BUSD, right? They do all this stuff on BNB chain and all this other fanciness, but BUSD itself is issued on Ethereum. It's important to understand that. 
Paxos, the issuer of BUSD, was issued a Wells notice by the SEC, meaning that the SEC told Paxos, we are planning to sue you for your issuance of BUSD, uh, which supposedly is because BUSD is an unregistered security. So Paxos gave a statement that they categorically disagreed with this claim. Uh, then the NYDFS ordered Paxos to stop issuing BUSD, and Paxos immediately complied. So they announced over the weekend that they were going to stop issuing any new BUSD. BUSD supply was only going to contract from here on out as people redeemed US, uh, BUSD either for dollars or for uh, USDP, which is Paxos's other unbranded uh, stablecoin product. It used to be called Pax. Now it's called USDP. Now, this stablecoin is much smaller. Uh, uh, USDP is like less than a billion dollars in circulation. And uh, interestingly, so the SEC, neither the SEC nor the NYDFS supposedly asked them to stop doing anything with USDP. USDP still exists, and, and uh, Paxos claimed that they're going to continue operating USDP, their own stablecoin. Uh, the NYDFS gave a statement to Reuters saying that Paxos violated its obligation to conduct tailored periodic risk assessments and due diligence refreshes of Binance, and Paxos issued US, uh, BUSD customers to prevent bad actors from using the platform. Quote, unquote, the token wasn't administered in a safe and sound manner. Uh, and there was other news that supposedly circled, tipped off the NYDFS about BUSD not always being backed. So there's a story that broke about a month ago that was reported by Bloomberg that claimed that Binance, so okay, again, we talked about BUSD is issued on Ethereum. When, when you use BUSD in Binance, you're not actually using BUSD on Ethereum, usually. You're actually using BUSD that's wrapped by Binance on BNB chain. And this wrapped BUSD, it's, this should be pretty simple, right? Usually when you wrap something, you just say, okay, I, I get one of these on this chain and I mint one of these on this chain and this one's a claim on this one-to-one. Uh, but that's apparently not what Binance was doing. Binance was doing all sorts of shenanigans such that the amount of wrapped BUSD that was supposed to be backed one-to-one by BUSD on Ethereum uh, was sometimes insufficiently backed, uh, sometimes up to the tune of a 1 billion, meaning there was a billion more wrapped BUSD than there was actual BUSD. Um, so all of this has turned out to be kind of a kind of a mess. And now we're at the point of trying to figure out, okay, is in fact the SEC going to claim that BNB, or sorry, that BUSD is a security? Um, if so, why? Uh, what is the legal theory under which it would potentially be a security? And um, what do we think this means for other stablecoins in the market besides BUSD? So Mark, first of all, did I get the, the high level of that correct? And, and any details you'd like to flesh out for why you think this is happening? Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's a perfect summary of it. I think the the interesting thing is like the NYDFS stuff is probably the most interesting in, in my opinion, right? The SEC thinking of stablecoin security, well, the SEC thinks everything's a security, right? So that's not like a huge surprise there. But I think on on NYDFS, they're basically saying, look, Paxos, you're issuing this stuff, and they pretty much implied like you're not doing anything wrong when it comes to the way that you are issuing it or the way that you're backing it. But you're doing this with a third party, right, which is Binance. And what they're doing is a problem. And you have a relationship with them. And by the way, this touches the product that you are issuing, which is, um, you know, BUSD. And so you are going to be on the hook for actually looking out that this product actually works the way it's supposed to, right? And the problem is when you've got, you know, BUSD on BSC, you basically have a product that now Paxos has no control over and DFS is looking at that and saying, yeah, we don't feel so good about that. Why don't you wind this down so that, that can't happen anymore? And I think that's like super interesting given the kind of collateral effect that a third party can have on a stablecoin, right? Because like, if you actually think about this, B, I mean, BUSD could be wrapped on any chain by anybody, 
Um, this is actually not something that Paxos actually has direct like control over. But I think it's the fact that Binance was doing it in such huge quantity and that they have a relationship with Binance that makes it super interesting. Yeah. So do you do you think this NYDFS and SEC thing were coordinated, or do you think it was all a response to this article that came out a month ago and they just happened to get publicized at the same time? I mean, it's really hard to think that this isn't coordinated, right? The agencies talk to each other, even like state and federal agencies. And when you see something like that, there's no reason to think that when you know that a product is regulated, that the SEC would not reach out to NYDFS about this. I would assume that that's actually the way it worked rather than DFS reaching out to the SEC. Otherwise, they'd be reaching out to the SEC about like a lot of things all the time. Um, and so I assume it's the SEC that ended up reaching out to NYDFS, but I don't have like any evidence of that. Sure. Okay. So the, the NYDFS part is that, okay, you guys are allowing your business partner slash affiliate to engage in these shenanigans. You're on the hook for the way in which your product is primarily used, which is through this Binance bridging mechanism. And if the bridging mechanism is not sound and they're doing all sorts of weirdness, then, okay, that's, you know, you're responsible for how your customers use your product. If, you know, if it's in direct affiliation, like you were, like your partnership with Binance, especially given that Binance gets a cut of the, of the revenue, right? Um, so, okay, the NYDFS part, you're irresponsible, I get that. So the, the more interesting part, I think, is the SEC part. Uh, that's, I think, the one that kind of rings out across the industry. So the SEC presumably is claiming that BUSD is an unregistered security. How, what, like, how, how can a stablecoin be a security? I, I, I don't want to go through the Howey test because everybody in crypto has heard it so many times that we're not going to subject them to any further brain damage. But clearly one of the prongs of the Howey test, which is one of the, 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 uh, the determinations of an investment contract, which is not the only type of security, but an investment contract requires an expectation of profit. And generally speaking, securities require some expectation of profit uh, on behalf of the buyer. A stable coin, by definition, you should not expect it to go up. Maybe it can go down, but it, it's not supposed to go up. So what, under what theory do you think this lawsuit is being brought against Paxos? I mean, I think you need to look behind beyond like an investment contract, right? And we've got these other prongs of like, or what a, a other parts of the definition of a security, right? Including a note, you know, and we've been introduced to the concept of reads more heavily recently. You also have concepts like a certificate of deposit, for example. You know, I tend to lean towards, you know, them looking at this similar to a note or maybe a certificate of deposit, which often have like this similar test, right? And even in that context, I still struggle to understand it because when you're looking at Reeves, which, you know, I'll walk through just real quick because people don't know it as well as Howie, you're basically generally looking at like, is there an investment purpose or is there a commercial purpose behind like what you're doing? Is this broadly distributed or is it distributed to like a narrow group of people? And then most importantly, the fourth prong of this test is like, is there an alternative regulatory regime or people often figure, forget or collateral, um, hence the power of DeFi. Um, or, um, some kind of insurance, right? And so there's a couple of things that you can fall on there, right? And first, like, are people really looking at this for investment purposes? And like, yeah, maybe they use it in connection with investment activity, but the stablecoin itself is not something that people are looking for investment purposes. It is broadly distributed, right? So, so that hurts. And then you look at an alternative regulatory regime. And I, that's actually one of the more interesting ones, which is people often state to like point to state laws for, hey, there's an alternative regulatory regime. But basically a lot of case law and SEC guidance has already said, no, an alternative, regu alternative regulatory regime needs to be something that like really replaces what the securities laws are intended to replace. So they've said that like state money transmitter laws, which are consumer protection laws, aren't good enough, right? And so you look at that and you're like, well, 
Event license is a little bit more than that. There's more disclosure involved. Is that enough? I tend to lean like probably to like not. But regardless, when you look at the entire part of like the entire reads analysis, you reach the conclusion of like, yeah, sure, this is broadly distributed, but nobody's really looking at it for investment purposes. And ultimately, you do have this regulatory regime, which is pretty robust. And there's really no reason to be treating this thing as, as a security. So like I, I, I like really struggle to comprehend like why it is this is treated as a security, with the one exception being what you do see is that these stable coins are not fully backed by the dollar, right? And we we know this, right? It's over time that's changed, but right, when you go to like the heydays of Tether, you know, you you really had like you're blindfully like trusting Tether on that one. Um, even USDC was pretty aggressive at a certain point in time, right? But now you look at them and you're like, okay, very little commercial paper in USDC's case, no commercial paper, I believe. And you've got treasuries backing it. Like that's pretty darn safe. Should you really treat that thing as a security? Like what do they need to disclose to you so that you can determine whether you want to hold this, right? And the answer is like, there's nothing that I want to know other than this is one-to-one fact, right? And so then you go like, okay, well, what about other laws, right? That's actually where it's more interesting, but it's not what the SEC told Paxos, right? Is, well, what about like the investment company's laws? What about like money market funds? Like maybe the money market fund is the argument that looks a little bit better, but you don't get any return on USDC like whatsoever in any way, which is kind of different from money market funds as I believe they work most of the time. And so I, I like really struggle to understand this one. And I think that's why Coinbase, frankly, is ready to go to bat on this, as they've said. And I'm guessing Pax is probably ready to go to bat on it as well. And, so, and Pax has certainly made noises as though they're ready to go to bat. The, one, of the, one of the statements that I saw floating around on Twitter was something that Gensler said in September, as he said, stablecoins have features similar to and potentially competing with money market funds, other securities, and bank deposits and raise important policy issues. Depending on their attributes, such as whether these instruments pay interest directly or indirectly through affiliates or otherwise, what mechanisms are used to maintain value or how the tokens are offered, sold, and used in the crypto ecosystem, maybe shares of a money market fund or another kind of security. Um, And so one of the speculations that I saw was that people were suggesting that maybe, I mean, one, Maybe he's looking at these things as money market funds that, for whatever reason, don't pay interest, which is maybe even a worse form of a money market fund because you're taking the risk and you're not getting any of the upside. Or alternatively, that you you could look at BUSD because Binance does have a a sort of earned product, right, that only takes BUSD. And so if you're looking at, as as Genzo put it here, through affiliates, it pays interest directly or indirectly through affiliates or otherwise, meaning that if you put your, your, your BUSD with Binance into the Binance earned program, and Circle, of course, has something similar with Circle Earn. If you take your USDC or your BUSD and you put it into the affiliate that is the issuer or effectively an affiliate of the issuer and they are earning you interest, then that's basically just like a transmutation of a money market fund where basically, you know, when you have just the the, the you have, you have the, the raw stablecoin with no interest, it's almost like you've basically withdrawn, but your money's not there yet, but you're not actually earning the yield that you would that you were entitled to if you want to opt into getting the yield. This could be, a very, I think, somewhat tortured argument for how it's basically a sort of money market uh, just with some, you know, slight bells and whistles. I don't know. That, that, that seems like one plausible way to, to read what the argument might be here. But of course, we, we don't know yet. Right now, it's all speculation. Yeah, I think you need to rely a lot on like how these things are marketed, right? And, and how they're actually used. And then like how you actually combine, like, like just from a product perspective, like how do you actually like offer this product? 
right? And I think there is a very big difference when you offer a product where on a page you're like, hey, mint this stable coin. And then by the way, hey, here you can deposit it right here. That's like very different from somewhere that says like mint this stable coin. And there's no world in which you see anything that has to do with the return on that stable coin and then need to go find that return. I think those are like two very different worlds because of exactly what like the risk is, which is like how it is marketed and what people's expectations are. Not even talking about the Howey test, just talking about securities in general in terms of like what people would expect when they're minting this product. I think um, I, I, I agree with sort of this, or I can see this sort of angle. I think the thing that feels very weird to me about this particular um, story is singling out BUSD and Binance in particular, as we sort of said, they're not going after USDP. And everything that you guys have said has, has been true of USDC and, and Coinbase for, you know, what, uh, two years now. You can, you know, mint USDC and Coinbase, you can earn, earn interest on your, your USDC and Coinbase and like, yeah, Coinbase earn or lend and it get to launch. But like, you know, th this other product has been live for quite a while. So it's, it's, it's weird to me that like, I'm, I'm trying to sort of imagine like, what are the specifics of Binance such that, you know, they would be targeted, but these other products would not be. And um, I think, you know, one angle, as you sort of said is, well, hey, maybe it's a sort of uh, a bridging issue where you have, you know, Binance sort of basically transmuting BUSD on, on Ethereum, which is like the core regulated product into this other thing. And we sort of seen issues when exchanges do that, right? This is what happened with Solet and um, FTX, where they were taking BTC and issuing, you know, Solet BTC. And then obviously that sort of totally evaporated. Or and then so maybe there's like a consumer protection angle there. You know, there's also sort of been this, this broader um, um, initiative and this broader, broader wave around crypto debanking going on for the past, you know, two months or so. And so there's maybe another story, you know, that this is sort of like another, you know, operation choke point type of thing where it's let's just go after, you know, the things that these exchanges touch in the sort of regulated system that we can access as a way to sort of get them, um, given that we don't really have a strong, uh, um, you know, precedent for going after them in whatever, you know, jurisdiction they're operating in. It did seem strangely quiet after FTX that, you know, we weren't seeing a whole lot of guns blazing, doors getting kicked down. And it seems like this is maybe the the, the response. It, it sort of took a few months of latency. I think it's been a little bit over three months now since FTX went under. And now we're starting to see some of the after effects, which is mostly kind of regulation by enforcement once again. We, we, you know, obviously the stablecoin issuers don't know what the rules are. They don't know what they're supposed to or not supposed to do, except, you know, what they might hear from NYDFS, which is, you know, a little bit more explicit than what the SEC guardrails are supposed to be. Ultimately, you know, we still don't know why they're going after, we're not going to know for a while why exactly they're going after them. Is it because, I mean, uh, you know, Tom, you sort of vaguely alluded to this. Is it just because of the affiliation with Binance? Is it that, you know, basically, okay, well, exchange, big exchange, big overseas exchange is bad. We can't directly go after Binance, so we can go after their affiliates and make it very, very clear if you're going to work with Binance, you're going to pay a price. Is it, is it the bridging issue? I don't, I don't see how that could make it a security, but I guess, you know, I can understand what the NYDFS would get on them for the, you know, Binance going to doing all this weirdness. But it seems, it seems like a stretch to say that, well, BUSD is security because Binance did all this bad bridge accounting. I don't know. It, it, it does feel, one, one thing is very clear, we're entering into a new regime now. And we're probably going to see a lot more things over the next two to three months from the US regulatory side. I sort of assumed, honestly, in January, that like, hey, actually the response seems pretty muted in the US, it seems actually pretty reasonable that, hey, we're thinking about legislation, we're trying to think of a more holistic way to, to kind of govern the industry. And I thought like, wow, we're, we're actually really getting set up for a pretty positive and forward-looking year and like more thoughtfulness about how the space should be legislated and regulated. Um, and it seems like, okay, maybe I spoke too soon and it's, you know, kind of 
kick down doors and take names time. I, I think there's two things that we shouldn't underestimate. First is how slow governments really move, including the SEC. And then second of all is their desire to go after like the weakest actor. Right? If you look at stable coins, like they're, they're pretty well defended. Like Paxos probably actually is the weakest defense defender because it isn't Paxos. It's Paxos that's defending it, not Binance. And we've seen from CZ that by, CZ is basically like, I'm backing away from this. Like you figure it out kind of thing. Um, but then on the point of like how slow they move, right? You think about it, Gensler took over. I can't remember exactly when now, but he kind of laid out what was a pretty obvious strategy. I'm going to attack stable coins. I'm going to attack lending. And then I'm going to attack like uh, any kind of exchange. And those things like take out to play out, right? Like, so you see him go after DeFi first and he's like, hey, you know, I want to go after, try to go after DeFi. You see him go after some like non-DeFi protocol, really. And then you hear news, you know, that he's like sent a subpoena or some voluntary request to Uniswap and like nothing really comes from it. And basically what I think he realizes, probably more decentralized than I actually thought. These centralized actors have a boatload of money in terms of exchanges. Let's leave that aside. Kind of let's take a look at lending. Well, lending took care of itself. <laughs> like he didn't need to do anything. Um, those centralized lenders uh, took, took, you know, made it made it real easy for them. Um, and then they look at decentralized lenders and they're like, eh, it's pretty darn tough as well. Like, you know, uh, probably probably not the best thing to go after. And then they look at the stable coins and they say, OK, a lot of money here. But that really is another choke point that we can attack. You know, let's put something together and, you know, work on it, work on it. And, you know, here we are. I, I really just wouldn't underestimate that this is like him having this three-pronged strategy, having kind of walked through this. And now he's at the point where kind of stable coins and, and everything else, right, is like culminating. Yeah, I mean, look, ironically, the, the net effect of this is that it consolidates Tether. Tether becomes even stronger now that basically Paxos has had their legs kicked out. And, you know, it's it's kind of the same story as, uh, you know, what happened with the big tech regulation and like, you know, going after Google and going after Facebook and trying to say, oh, you guys are monopolies, is that it really, it, it weakens the, U, it weakens U.S. The, like right now the U.S. has a monopoly on social media and that's going to get uh, torn away if these if these big companies become less competitive. The same thing is happening now with U.S. stablecoins, right? Now Paxos, like you said, is the weakest. Obviously Coinbase and Circle are going to fight much harder than Paxos is. And Paxos, if you shut off BUSD, that is the vast majority of their revenue is their issuance of BUSD, right? This, this thing is, uh, you know, over $10 billion of issues, $16 billion that they're currently collecting fees on. The vast majority of their business is, is this. So if you shut this off, uh, they are going to have to fight for their lives and they're not going to have much revenue with which to continue fighting the SEC on this. Um, and Binance, like you said, Binance has basically left them for dead and they're like, oh, it's fine, you know, whatever. We, we, didn't, we didn't care that much about the stablecoin to begin with and, you know, we're, we, we, we don't want to step into the line of fire at this point when we've got much bigger things to protect. So it's really unfortunate that Paxos, which is a great business, at this point, vast majority of their revenue is now under direct threat. I don't know, Robert, what do you, what do you think happens from here with like the rest of the stable coins that are in the line of fire? Well, I think the worst case scenario that plays out is that, you know, Paxos is a smaller issuer than someone like Center Consortium that creates USD coin and that this creates some sort of precedent that gets used to attack other stablecoin issuers. $14 billion BUSD is a lot, but it's, you know, the third largest stablecoin. I think the bigger risk comes if there's precedent that gets used and established against other stablecoins, USD coin and Tether. And I think that's the sort of doomsday scenario in my mind, which is 
stablecoins are like the primary on and off ramp and bridge between traditional markets and crypto. And however effective, you know, this, you know, attack on crypto is right now by targeting banks and getting them to, you know, debank large, you know, crypto players. There's a lot of articles about this recently. I think by taking out stable coins, they're going to take out, you know, an even bigger on and off ramp for the majority of consumers and investors. And, you know, I, I, I think if it's successful, it draws into question, you know, how are people supposed to use this stuff? Um, and, you know, fundamentally, I think this will take a long time to play out, especially if Paxos is going to, you know, take this through the legal system and defend themselves. I think it might be years, but it has the potential to put a shadow over stable coins for the two years that this takes to play out potentially. And, you know, I think, you know, to the average user, I think this will be generally invisible, but I think the larger ramification is going to be the people that are saying like, hey, I'm a traditional financial institution. Should I interact with stable coins? Or, hey, I'm a bank or, hey, I'm a, you know, hedge fund. Should I interact with stable coins? And they're going to say, you know what? The last headline I saw on this was, you know, there's active litigation about the security nature of a stable coin and they're going to shy away from it. It just, it creates a chilling effect for what I perceive to be the most important asset class in crypto. You know, I think going after stable coins is impactful in a way that going after any individual company is not, right? If Celsius, you know, is shuttered or, you know, if Kraken is, you know, has a piece of its business shuttered, it doesn't really have a permanent effect on the rest of the ecosystem. But I think stable coins have, have an outsized impact on the rest of the ecosystem when they come under attack. And so, you know, I'm, I'm quite nervous, frankly, about, you know, this action against Paxos because of the ramifications and the knock-on effects it'll have elsewhere. Well, I'm hoping that once we learn more about the nature of this lawsuit, that, that we see that there's some more explicit rationale that's not, okay, stablecoin equals security, and it's something more idiosyncratic to what BUSD was doing or what Binance was doing or something like that. That, I think, is our best hope at the moment. If, in fact, Gensler is going to say, stablecoins are securities, bar none, uh, unless Congress tells me otherwise, like, that's the way it is, then, I mean, the, the, the other, the, the other counter, counterside to that is that, of course, there, is, there does seem to be a lot of legislative energy behind having some kind of stablecoin uh, legislative framework. And, and maybe that will be accelerated if, in fact, there is a, you know, uh, some some regulatory action and public outcry and more attention on this question. Because the net effect of this, like I said, is going to be pushing stablecoins overseas, right? If if ultimately Circle can't issue it and Paxos can't issue it, well, Tether is not going to stop. And Tether it's much harder to go after Tether, obviously, than it is to go after you know domestic U.S. companies. That being said, you know, BUSD, I like, I, are any Americans using BUSD, right? Like. One, obviously, Americans by and large don't need stablecoins because they already have dollars. And then second, of course, Binance USD. Binance is a small player in the US. Uh, they have very small market share with with uh, uh, Binance US. Uh, and then, of course, in the US, you know, USDC is by far the most well-known stablecoin um, behind Tether. So it, it, it does feel like a, a weird target to choose. Um, and I have to assume by the nature of that, that it's really a backdoor way of getting at Binance than it is something more specific to stablecoins in general, or even about Paxos? You know, it's actually really unfortunate on the stablecoin le uh, legislation, because that's just such a good point that nothing's happened on that front. And unfortunately, right in like 
the current Congress, it's just hard to see anything happening. But it is like the lowest hanging fruit possible. It's really easy legislation, honestly, when you think about like, what do do we want to know? We want to know that you're holding assets that aren't just going to disappear. And we want to know that you're actually holding them. Basically, period. Um, It's it's not that hard. Um, And so it's just unfortunate that we're likely not going to see that anytime, anytime soon, only because of like the makeup of Congress, even though I think we've got like a lot of folks in the House and Senate who frankly are really thoughtful on this issue and could deal with it quite easily. Yeah. It's a, it's a big hit to BNB as well. Cause it, 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 I think, I mean, again, speculation at the moment, but I think it, it seems to cast a bit of a specter that Gensler is going to be coming after Binance. And especially with the affiliation with FTX, I mean, again, I think this is kind of bullshit, but the narrative that, that propagated in the US by, by some parties, that the downfall of FTX was caused by Binance or caused by CZ in some way, makes him an easy target. And certainly, you know, now that he's consolidated market share and he's, you know, the, the guy, on, the big guy on the block and the biggest overseas unregulated exchange or sort of underregulated, let's say, exchange, I think it's, it's, it's very clear that uh, there's a lot of, He's 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 the biggest game that there is to hunt in this industry, um, and I think Gensler's going to be going after him however he can, even if it causes some collateral damage along the way. Were there uh, when when this news came out? Was there any celebrating at Polygon that that BNB was taking a hit? We like never celebrate the failures of others. Okay. Yeah, but like, okay. like more seriously, like it, honestly, it's not good for anyone in the industry. I mean, you know, all. L1s, all L2s do well with this industry growing. This is like, it's it it sounds so like typical, but it's just true. Like there's so much more to grow. And like, as you guys already know, like Polygon were focused on like a way bigger market. So like the desire for like anyone to go down is like not big at all. It's really, we just want to see like the market grow. And this does not help that at all. Right, right. Well, the, the second big headline this week for the SEC was uh, going after Kraken for their staking program. So there was a $30 million settlement with Kraken where the SEC uh, basically got Kraken to shut down their staking program. So the staking program involved uh, a number of tokens. Uh, I believe it was not Ether, but uh, a bunch of other stuff that they were, that they've been a long running staking program with like, you know, Adam and other traditional staking tokens. And in their complaint, they listed some of the features of Kraken's staking program that they believed made Cracking staking program a security or unregistered security specifically. So uh, some of the features of Kraken's program that they pointed out, the first was that Kraken, so normally you would think, okay, staking, how is that a security, right? Because staking, you're just taking somebody's tokens, you're delegating them or whatever, like it's just kind of a software service. And a software service traditionally should not be a security. Uh, but Kraken had actually a lot of, uh, a, a lot of kind of quote unquote managerial efforts that they imposed in, in a, a lot of kind of strategic pricing that they did in this staking program. So the first is that the staking program did not actually pay the underlying yields. It didn't even pay a percentage of the underlying yields. In fact, they promised a fixed percentage return to their customers, which was uh, potentially irrespective of what the underlying blockchain paid. And they paid that on a cadence that was not, that had no bearing on how often the blockchain was actually paying out those rewards. They commingled their own tokens as well as customer tokens. They determined when and how many of the tokens to stake. So they have like a liquidity reserve. They sort of capped for uh, instant withdrawals and they kind of managed like, okay, we need to make sure that there's this much uh, buffer so that people withdraw at this time, whatever. They did not disclose how much their take rate was in the actual staking. They did not impose bonding and unbonding periods 
And they market it as an investment opportunity. They use words like returns and yield in their advertisements for this product. So the SEC claimed that all these features made Kraken's staking program a unregistered security and that it had to be registered or only offered to accredited investors. So Kraken decided they were going to shut down the product within the U.S. Obviously, international customers are totally fine to continue using the product. It continues uh, unabated. So now immediately after this was announced, uh, this settlement, uh, Coinbase piped up and said, hey, well, we're different. That, that, that doesn't apply to us uh, because we don't do any of that stuff. We are, you know, don't commingle funds. Uh, we are not an investment of money because users retain claim to their assets. Uh, we have the staking rewards tied to the blockchain rewards. We don't set the staking rewards and we just provide IT services, blah, blah, blah. This is totally different. If the SEC wants to come after us, we are happy to go to court and we'll fight them on this. So Coinbase made very, very clear that unlike Kraken, uh, Coinbase was willing to go to the mat if they went after their staking services. And this is important for Coinbase in particular uh, because Coinbase, a lot of Coinbase's story uh, for Wall Street has been the diversification of revenue. And staking, of course, is you know very high margin business. It's pretty cheap to run a validator node, but obviously it scales with the amount of uh, Ether or other stakeable assets that you own. Um, I think today there was, a, there was an estimate that I saw from an analyst that said uh, about 13% of their net revenues were expected to come from staking, uh, majority driven by retail. And of course, retail pays much higher margins than institutions. So losing retail staking, um, although it's a relatively small part of your deposit base, it's a huge slice of your margin. So retail pays much higher margins on, uh, or much higher fees, basically on staking. They pay something like 25%, whereas institutional clients generally play ten, you know, 5 to 10% uh, of fees on staking. Even though institutions are the majority of the AUM, retail pays a very large share of the overall fees that would go to a company like Coinbase for their staking efforts. In the aftermath of Kraken shutting down their staking program, we saw Jesse, uh, the CEO, or the former CEO of Kraken, founder of Kraken, basically complaining like, look, we, we don't have the resources to fight this, but I hope somebody does because this is bad for innovation. And ultimately it makes it harder for us to actually provide this a valuable service to US customers. Um, and of course we saw liquid staking providers immediately rally after this, uh, after the settlement under the expectation that now retail is going to have to be forced to use alternatives that may not be through centralized providers. Um, so what were you guys thoughts on this crack and settlement and what do you think it means for staking going forward, particularly in the U.S., I should say. In case it wasn't clear, this is a U.S. story. It doesn't apply to anything outside the U.S. Let's start with Mark, the, le- the legal expert on the call. Yeah. So I think, I think first that I want to distinguish personally, par- partially out of self-interest, but partially because I actually think it's important is that this literally has nothing to do with like staking itself. And the reason I say that's because like FUD on, on crypto Twitter is like amazing, right? And everyone's talking about like staking is going to be illegal, staking is a security, and like, that's not at all what this is. And frankly, that would be like an absolutely, I, I know there's been discussions about it, but it would be absolutely absurd outcome that would not be logical at all. And I can't understand like the legal basis for it, like at all. Um, and so it's really focused on like custodial staking. And I think most importantly, and I think Coinbase was frankly smart to make this distinction, which is like how this is actually done is really important. You know, when you, and frankly, how it's marketed as well, right? So you've got like the, Marketing that Coinbase does that is kind of focused on, hey, first of all, we're moving towards like a really DeFi friendly company and hey, you can come stake here, you can secure networks, it's fantastic, right? And then you had Kraken that was more focused on, hey, come earn this return. And the second that you start saying, hey, come earn this return, I think I heard somewhere some like double digit, but like even like over 20% returns on some stuff, 
like you're going to, you're going to raise eyebrows. And, and honestly, that starts looking like, uh, the staking that you, um, see in DeFi rather than the staking that you see on, uh, an L1 or, or L2. And so when you're, when you kind of get to that point, you start saying, okay, well, let's analyze this under some kind of t- test, right? And you get to the Howey test. And I mean, really simply, you have to look at whether Kraken's efforts were actually significant in this. And, you know, I, there was a lot in the SEC's complaint that basically made it sound like Kraken was just giving some random percentage that they chose. I'm not sure that that's actually accurate based on, I think Jesse might've said it as well, that like they weren't actually promising like a fixed return. Like you were actually getting what you would get on chain minus some fee that Kraken took. And that is like very different from what they marketed, which I think hurt them a lot, which was come get this fixed percentage. So I think that's like the first thing that like really hurt them. But like when you ultimately look at like custodial staking, you have to basically ask yourself like how meaningful of a role are they playing? And ultimately, like, what are you doing? You're custodying funds. Okay, well, you're doing that for purposes that have nothing to do with that staking in the first place. So let's just disqualify that. And then you basically say, okay, I'm already running this node. You could run a node yourself, by the way. We could provide instructions. Yeah, it's complicated, but you could do it yourself if you wanted to. And so really, what are we doing for you? We're going to go ahead and stake your funds as well and give you a percentage of what we're earning there. It's not that much work. Most of the yield, where is it coming from? It's coming on chain, right? And so if you think of like whose predominant efforts are these, it's really not Kraken's. It's really the yield that's being driven like on chain. And so to me, this is really one that is very fact specific that is focused on like how Kraken actually marketed this. I'm not saying there isn't like an opening here for the SEC. Um, but I definitely think that like the gap on like how easy a custodial staking service is to take down from a securities law perspective is way smaller than what you would think at first blush when you look at the Kraken facts. Yeah, that, that tracks. I, I did feel like, uh, this story freaked a lot of people out on crypto Twitter who didn't actually read the, uh, SEC complaint. And the more I read the complaint, the more I was like, oh, okay, actually, this." the more I read, the, 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 the more I actually kind of buy the argument that this was basically, I mean, it was one of the very first staking programs that was implemented. And, you know, kudos to Kraken for being very early to this market. And the settlement, I think, was like, uh, it was something like 70% of all the profit that they made for U.S. customers, from, for, sorry, I should say, from U.S. customers over the course of the staking program. So it's unfortunate, it's quite, you know, it's a lot of money, of course, to have to, to, have to give up. Um, and to give up the U.S. retail staking business. But ultimately, they still have a big international business. They're obviously big in Europe. They still are continuing to stake there. Um, so it's not the end of the line for even custodial staking. And of course, institutional clients can still stake custodially. It's not a big deal. It's it's really just the kind of retail marketing and the structure of this particular staking program was such that it, you were trusting Kraken to do the right thing. And they were not disclosing enough for you know, the SEC to basically make it kind of a, kind of have a field day with the way that this program is structured. Yeah, I, I think this is a case of, you know, you have a CFI platform that does sort of what it wants, secret sauce, managing assets to pay a return. And like the users don't have that much visibility into exactly how it works and what's happening under the hood. And it seems reminiscent of all the things that brought down Celsius and BlockFi and, you know, dot, 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 like all of these other platforms. And so I can see why 
you know, there's an interest in, you know, trying to regulate Kraken's, you know, staking and staking is a broad term, you know, program here. Um, because it it's reminiscent of all the other things that failed horrifically. I think what differentiates it is that it runs a lot lower risk of causing a calamity for its users than all of the other black box, you know, CFI, oh, we're going to make money for you, you know, give us your assets. Um, because it's not fundamentally lending everything to three hours capital and hoping for the best. It's participating in blockchain validation. But, you know, I think the argument that's being made against it is relatively sound. You know, you're trusting them with your money. You have no idea really what's under the hood. And you just hope for the best. You're funny enough, this was actually what Anchor was originally, right? The Anchor, Terra Anchor from, <laughs> like the original idea for Anchor was that they were going to generate the yield that they paid out to uh, Luna depositors um, by staking, by taking the, the assets that were held in Anchor and staking them, generating the yield and paying it out to customers. And so I think, I, I, I agree with you, Robert. I think there's a version of, of custodial staking that basically is just a pass-through IT service. And they can collect a fee, and and that's totally fair. And this is not a managerial effort kind of thing. Um, but just the way that this cracking program happened to be structured, and to, to be clear, I totally understand why you would structure it that way in lieu of any guidance, because you're like, hey, you know, we're the first to do this. Hey, it's actually better for customers if we offer a fixed rate. We A/B tested it, and they like the fixed rate more than the floating rate, and it's easier to understand. It's easier to market. Or like, oh, actually, they like it when we give them instant redemptions, right? Like instant withdrawals. That's a thing that they appreciate, even if it's a lower uh, a lower fee. So I understand as a startup founder, uh, as a as an entrepreneur, you naturally you're going to try to iterate your product to make it more attractive, more palpable. Um, and of course, the SEC keeps claiming like, well, why didn't you come in and talk to us and register? And if you just registered, then, you know, why, why, why do you people keep launching these products without registering with us? You know, the reality is that almost none of these businesses have ever gotten any indication that there is a real serious path to registration besides just shutting this thing down or sitting around and waiting in limbo forever. In which case... I totally understand why Kraken went in this direction. Um, it seems like it was a great product, and obviously that's why it got a lot of retail adoption. Uh, but ultimately, to your point, Robert, enough iterations of product improvement make it basically look like it's a it's a it's a basically a fund that earns its yield through staking, and it pays out some of that yield to customers, and customers don't really care how much of it they're getting. They just like they love the fixed yield, they love the instant with redemptions. It's it's a good product. They liked it, but ultimately, it is very reminiscent of many other kinds of investment products that would require registration. I do think that it's worth looking at like the source of the risk and how that source of risk is actually really different though, right? Is like when you look at CFI lending, the source of the risk is making bad investment decisions as a CFI entity in terms of like what you lend, you know, what kind of risk, you know, programs you had in place, things of that nature. And then you bring that back over to, you know, staking and you're like, okay, well, those risks actually don't exist. Like, what are the risks that exist? And the risks that exist that are the same are basically more like fraud-like risks. Like you'd have to commit some kind of fraud to not provide the returns that you promised you're returning based off of some on-chain evidence of that, right? And like making that transparent is like super easy, right? It's, it's not that hard to say like, here's our node. Um, take a look at what our returns are like. So like, I, I just think the source of that risk is so different that you can't really compare like lending and staking. I think where it gets like a little bit more interesting is with ETH slightly because you actually have to do more things 
And if you are an individual user and you're like, hey, I don't have 32 ETH, like, what am I going to do? I think at that point, it's like, maybe, arguably, slightly different. But I don't think that's generally the case. And so I, I just think the diff- that source... Well, Mark, you don't think that the fact that the fact that they were managing like a liquidity reserve and they were trying to keep enough that they were staking in order to actually pay the yield, but they were keeping enough aside to like forecast how much redemptions they were... Like, that's the kind of stuff that a hedge fund manager does. Oh, yeah. No, there's no doubt. Sorry. Kraken, to be clear, <laughs> I, I think there was like several things about that. The promised yield... Um, the way they handled like the, the unbonding, but really like not correlated unbonding with when they paid things out. There was a lot there that they actually had to like actively manage. So like, I agree on, on Kraken. Like that, that's why I think this was like the low. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, to be clear, I don't think we believe that this is true for all staking custodial staking services. Yeah. Okay. I, I, yeah. I totally agree with you that if you take away those elements, which Coinbase claims that they have, I, I haven't actually looked into the details, but Coinbase claims that, look, we don't have any of those elements. You stake, you do the unbonding, you do the bonding, you get paid out when the blockchain pays out. Uh, that kind of stuff looks like a pure IT pass-through. That does not look like a, an investment product to me, but obviously I'm, you know, I'm not the SEC, so maybe my opinion doesn't matter. Yeah, I think a few other staking providers like Figment came out saying sort of the same thing, like, hey, it's, it's sort of straight pass-through. You know, we don't have this sort of liquidity pool. We're not sort of, you know, proprietary tokens. We're sort of blending in to sort of smooth out rewards or whatever. So I agree, it's, it's sort of categorically different, but... I mean, I agree with sort of the, the first point, which is like, hey, if I were in, you know, Jesse's position three years ago when I was launching this, like, of course, these are features that I would want because they're actually great for, you know, customers and like Lido and their V2, right? They will have a redemption pool. So you get, you know, faster redemptions. You have to go through the unbonding period. Like, they're great to have. And it was it was funny when, uh, you know, this, this settlement came out and Gensler went on like CNBC or something saying, hey, you know, if you're an entrepreneur... We have a form on our website. You have to fill that out. And then that's all you need to do. And then you're good to go. And, and Jesse was, you know, sort of quote tweeting him and, and saying, uh, well, you know, that's, it's not literally that simple. You can fill that out and you can wait three years and not get any clarity and, and you know, not get a green light. And like, that's your know, three years is death if you're, you're a startup founder. And so there's this really <clears throat> unfortunate conflict, I think, where crypto entrepreneurs want sort of clear, bright line disclosure rules, uh, uh, you know, some guidance on how they can be compliant. And the SEC is just not giving it to them, and they're going to this, you know, regulation by uh, an enforcement path, um, which which sucks. It's you know, we don't sort of see the alternate universe and sort of the cost of, of this approach of all the teams that are not starting because they're too afraid because they don't know what's going to happen or they don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars in uh, uh, funds that they can spend for legal fees to get off the ground. So I, I can kind of see both sides to this argument, but I, overall, I agree. This is like I think very emblematic of such a clean, clear product that should be, able, should be able to have been launched in the U.S. in a compliant way, and there was just no real guidance or clarity around it. And the thing that sucks is that, like, this right here is also Sam. This is FTX, right? This is, this, this is the consequences of what happened in November, is they go after Kraken, they shut down a staking program, and somebody had a great uh, tweet that, um, a little bit of a dunk on the SEC, it's like, wow, the SEC, after everything that happened last year, the best thing they think to do is to go after Paxos and Kraken, which ironically are two of the most kind of buttoned up, most compliant firms in the industry, which look, I, look, if you're, if you're Gensler and you're probably getting pressure from the executive to start, you know, making moves, taking doors, doing stuff in crypto to show that like, Hey, you are the cop on the beat and we have this industry under control. I can understand that, you know, he has to do something and it's much easier to go after legible businesses like a Paxos and a Kraken than to go after, you know, it's like like you were saying, Mark, like go after these DAOs that kind of unclear where the regulatory jurisdiction is, and there's some 
there's some overseas foundation or something, or do I go after the, like, what, what do I, what do I even do in these cases? And yeah, they're, they, they are really strong and, and very well guarded doors to try to be attacking. Um, whereas, you know, Paxos and, 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 uh, and Kraken, Paxos will be interesting to see if they do fight and if they do end up taking this thing to court, um, that'll be, I'd love to see that. Of course, that'll take years to play out. And in the meantime, there will be a chilling effect from the, uh, from the impending lawsuit. But in the case of Kraken, you know, it, it, it just wasn't worth fighting because, you know, they have bigger fish to fry and ultimately U.S. retail staking is nice to have for Coinbase. It's a much bigger business. Uh, if Coinbase, if Coinbase feels that the SEC is going to come after them, they absolutely will fight because it's worth it to them to protect that line of business. Uh, but for Kraken, I can understand why they would say, hey, fine, you know, have it. So, well, there is, there is, uh, speaking of DeFi and different kinds of targets of, of, uh, of attack, there is, there was a big drama around Uniswap governance. Uh, and it's, it's, it's brought up a lot of conversations related to governance, legitimacy, De- proof of stake, uh, and how some of these decisions in on-chain governance are made. So I, I want to rewind back a little bit because we talked about it a bit at the end of the last episode. Um, so to recap, Uniswap wanted to launch on BNB chain. And uh, you know the, the, the Uniswap V3 license is coming up soon, so there's a little bit more pressure and urgency to try to get this thing launched on multiple chains before the license expires and potentially Uniswap V3 competitors are just getting forked everywhere. Um, so the, we, we need to launch on, on BNB chain and we needed some bridge to be able to pass messages from Uniswap governance over into the new bridge, or sorry, over into the new chain. So the two candidate interoperability solutions were Wormhole and Layer Zero. Enter A16Z. A16Z, of course, early backer of Uniswap. They led the Series A. They own a shitload of Uniswap tokens. They delegated much of their tokens to third parties, uh, including a lot of these blockchain university groups. So like, you know, the Harvard, Michigan, Cornell blockchain groups, uh, as well as they had their own tokens that they just kind of voted themselves. Uh, Previously, they had, I believe they'd never voted uh, their tokens directly. They'd only used these sort of student groups to whom they had delegated tokens. But in this decision between Wormhole and Layer Zero, uh, A6 and Z was also a backer of Layer Zero. And they claimed they did not like Wormhole because Wormhole obviously had gotten hacked last year uh, for 300 million with Jump made whole and they've had, you know, whatever issues. Uh, people then pointed out, well, well, Layer Zero also had issues and this whole press switch thing happened that we discussed in the last show. Um, and ultimately Wormhole just has, you know, more, whatever it is, I don't know, whatever the arguments are for Wormhole. And so there was an informal poll that was done that uh, was sort of a community sentiment poll. And in that poll, uh, A6 and Z had not voted but they sort of said like, well, our setup, our custody, something, 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 uh, we can't actually vote, but we were, we are against this. Um, so please know that as you are taking the kind of general temperature check uh, is that we would prefer layer zero over wormhole or to reconsider the, the notion entirely. Uh, but most of the community was pro wormhole. And so they said, okay, well, it seems like the community is pro wormhole. A6 and Z is kind of making noises, but whatever. Let's go ahead and put it into an on-chain vote. On-chain vote takes place. And A16Z, by far the largest single voting block in Uniswap governance, boom, 15 million votes or 50 million uni voting for uh, no, screw wormhole, take it back to committee. And basically over the upcoming five days for voting, almost every other large party in Uniswap governance votes, yes, let's go through with wormhole, including Robert Leshner who is uh, one of the big uni delegates, uh, including basically a bunch of the student groups that also were delegated their uh, stake by A16Z. And A16Z sort of ended up getting a lot of public flack for the way in which they participated in this 
uh, entire governance drama. So there are a few questions, I think, that are worth discussing in this whole thing. So the, the vote's over, wormhole one, you know, it's gonna be, it's gonna be taken to wormhole, whatever, okay, so that's over. A few questions. So first, uh, Chris Black was on Unchained earlier this week, basically saying that this proves that proof of stake is bullshit and that proof of stake is not really decentralized and kind of attacks the, leg- the legitimacy of on-chain governance. Second is, you know, do we think, okay, take that aside, do we think that A16Z was right to vote the way that they did or that they deserve the flack that they got for the way in which they voted on-chain? Uh, and then third, I'd like to hear from you, Robert, why you voted the way that you did. I know that you're, you're close to the A16Z guys and, you know, you, I, I don't know if they delegated you any of their tokens, maybe they did, I, don't, I have no idea. But um, how did you see this whole debacle playing out? It's probably the highest profile governance situation in DeFi in recent history. Well, it was definitely the most interesting. And, you know, my first point is that, you know, highly contentious governance votes are healthy and build a stronger system. You know, I, you know, despise systems that are just like a rubber stamp. And I think, you know, if Uniswap government governance gets in the habit of just rubber stamping, you know, whatever proposals come along, it will be less healthy and less strong than if it has highly contentious, widely debated governance votes that test the community. So, you know, first off, I think this is actually really strong for Uniswap. You know, I voted for deploying, you know, Uniswap on Binance Chain for a very simple reason. The license is expiring and either there's an official deployment that has an opportunity to gain traction or there's not. And by the time Uniswap deploys on Binance Chain, 20 other projects have forked the code base. PancakeSwap has forked the code base. You know, it's a free-for-all. And so this is the Uniswap community's moment and opportunity to deploy. And time is not on its side. The sooner it happens, the better. And so, you know, given that context, I think then it's worth analyzing the trade-offs between, you know, one brick provider and another and whether the process was fair or unfair. So. Looking at that, I'll preface by saying Robot Ventures is an investor in Layer Zero, as well as A16Z, as well as you know many other folks in the community. We're not investors in Wormhole. But the way I saw this playing out was, I think, actually really positive for Uniswap governance, which is it doesn't matter if A16Z bangs on the table and says, change the rules. The Uniswap Foundation laid out a process for governance to go through the life cycle. It doesn't matter if one stakeholder or four stakeholders say, like, I don't like that process, right? That process was established. It doesn't matter that A16Z didn't set up their wallet correctly, whatever. That's not Uniswap <laughs> governance's problem, right? It's like, that's their problem, right? Like, you shouldn't deviate from the established governance process because, like, one person complains. It doesn't matter how important or well-known they are, right? I actually think it's positive that the process wasn't modified to somehow include A16Z's off-chain votes that never occurred, right? So I think the process was followed correctly, and that's actually incredibly strong. I think, you know, when you look at, okay, given that there was a process and, you know, maybe Layer Zero would have won if A16Z got their wallet in shape, they didn't, and the established process led to Wormhole being what was proposed for a formal on-chain vote. And in that context, you know, for me, I think it was a simple no-brainer of do we ship Uniswap as a community on Binance or do we wait and go back to the drawing board and spend another six weeks 
you know, or eight weeks or whatever, you know, going in circles again and relitigating things and rehashing it, et cetera. I think, to be honest, layer zero is probably the stronger technology. But which technology is stronger doesn't really matter. One, because of timing, and two, because the actual content of what's being passed over a bridge matters so much less than people think it does. So when people hear bridges, they think, oh, I have to lock my assets in a bridge and put an asset over to another blockchain. You know, there's a huge amount of risk. You know, which one is riskier? Oh, wormhole was hacked. Oh, layer zero is, you know, security holes in it. Oh my goodness. None of that matters. And the reason is the only thing that this bridge is being used for is to pass governance messages from Ethereum voters to the contracts on Binance chain. And there's such a small surface area of risk in that compared to a bridging process that you are trusting your assets to. Uniswap is famously not really a governance-heavy smart contract. There's really very little for governance to actually do. It's establishing new fee tiers, which might happen once, right? And it's setting the fees on specific pools. Even if that goes horribly wrong through the governance process, users can't have their money stolen. (laughs) Funds can't disappear. There's really negligible to zero risk on the users for which provider is selected. And this can evolve and change over time. So personally, I think the importance of the bridge provider is massively overstated. And I think the importance of timing was understated. And all of that being said, I thought this was a very straightforward and obvious vote to deploy on the Binance chain. And I think the correct outcome won. And you know, I think everybody should actually be pretty happy with the outcome of this. Oh, I was going to say, I, I totally agree. This feels extremely bike shetty for the reason that Robert mentioned, which is it's literally just passing messages to yeah, BNB chain. And even the vote itself, right, is like a approval of the DAO to like grant a like legal license to deploy on this chain. So it's like all very sort of high level. Um, and even beyond that, there's now a proposal basically to use multiple bridges. So use multiple bridges, you send all the messages, new, new chain, and then the governance process takes place and chooses amongst those, those messages. So it's like, you know, the actual importance of any individual bridge provider is so, 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 so low. Um, and yet, you know, this is an extremely contentious governance debate for some reason. Well, it's a bit like academia and that the, um, the arguments are so intense because the stakes are so low. I don't think that's actually true, though, because, of course, uh, you know, for, for Uniswap, the stakes are low. For the vendors, the stakes are enormous because Uniswap, of course, is the biggest application on Ethereum um, or, you know, maybe OpenSea on certain days. But, you know, generally speaking, it's Uniswap. And, you know, being the preferred vendor for Uniswap is just a big stamp of approval, right? So it's like fighting for a government contract. It's going to be aggressive on behalf of the people who are competing. And they're going to find different ways to compete, such as, you know, our connected Sugar Daddy is going to go in and, you know, make a big appeal to see if they can get us on uh, on the fast track. That being said, the the predominant way in which this was covered and which I've seen people talk about this is that A16Z is like they're perverting the process or they're doing something wrong by, you know, taking blah, 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 which I think is is just clearly complete nonsense. I mean, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm obviously not as privy to process violations that they may have incurred. I have no idea. So Robert, maybe uh, if I'm wrong about that, let me know. But it feels to me like, Async Z has a lot of money because they own a lot of uni. And the way the proof of stake works is that if you own a lot of something, you get a voice. And Async Z gets a voice. And their voice is that like, hey, we want it to use layer zero instead of wormhole. And now you could say like, well, but is that in the interest of uni holders or is that in the interest of only yourself? Well, if you own uni token, you're not a fiduciary to the other people who own uni. You are responsible 
for speaking for your own interests. And the point of proof of stake is to aggregate the interests of everyone, as opposed to have everybody try to aggregate everyone else's interests by guessing what they would value or what they would want, right? And so it's a little bit like, um, you know, Matt Levine talks about this when it comes to uh, um, uh, indexes, right? Uh, or indexers or the, the rise of, of, of passive, uh, uh, passive indexes, which is that when people own more and more of the market, when they own lots of different names, uh, it actually makes it so that uh, it is in the interest of the sort of stakeholders in a protocol or in a company um, for the entire, port- the average portfolio of somebody to go up in value as opposed to for that particular stock to go up in value. So for example, for Pfizer, Pfizer is the kind of company that actually incredibly uh, produced an enormous amount of value for the world, for everybody's portfolio. Everything else you own was benefited by the by what Pfizer did in rapidly distributing the vaccine and not you know basically price gouging everybody on earth for the the covid vaccines right that's that was good for us maybe bad for for Pfizer's bottom line but very very good for the rest of your portfolio and therefore it is rational for shareholders to say hey do the thing that's better for my overall portfolio and better for the world quote unquote as opposed to do the thing that's best for your stock price i don't give a shit about your stock price i own a lot of other stuff a16z is basically doing the same thing they're saying look i have a bigger portfolio than just uniswap and yes, it may be at some mild loss Uniswap, but it's better for my overall portfolio if you use layer zero. I think that's perfectly legitimate. Now, look, the overall people who hold Uni clearly did not feel the same way. They did not also hold layer zero. And so they voted against it. Boom, proof of stake works. It aggregated the interests of people who own Uniswap. Um, I think it worked exactly as intended. I totally understand why it's easy to make A16Z a villain in all of this, but I don't see this in any way as being an indictment of proof of stake. I see it as, yeah, it is totally okay for people to have concentrated interests in your token base. That's why these tokens are sellable. If you don't like that, don't allow tokens to be sold. And second, if you don't like, you know, proof of stake, then I I, I don't know. I don't know what else to sell you. Like there's nothing else in town really other than multi So I think by the way that Robert's like very right that like Uniswap governance is the number one winner here. I actually think A16Z is the second winner in this. And, and here's like the, the reason. Wait, why, why do you say that? Here, here's the reason. That's a surprise answer. Let, let's hear it. Yeah. Is that VCs take a, like a lot of risk being involved in governance. And people like really go after VCs for doing that. They don't realize how much of a benefit it is to portfolio companies a lot of the times. Like a lot of investors are saving Portco's asses, honestly, by actually participating in governance. Sometimes it's not through the best process. Sometimes it doesn't look good. Sometimes they're self-interested. Sometimes they're not. They are really helping their portcos. And so if you look at it from A16Z's perspective, they often hold like more tokens than anyone else. If there's anyone who's going to be on a hot seat from like a legal perspective or the number of tokens that they, they hold and their participation in governance, it is A16Z. So what's A16Z's defense against this? Well, they could say, we're going to hold fewer tokens. They have no interest in doing that. So what they're going to do instead is they're going to say, let's delegate some votes. Why are we going to delegate it? Because we're going to have a contract that we open sourced so that everyone can see that specifically says that when we delegate tokens to you, we have no right to tell you what to do with those tokens whatsoever. But the thing is, historically, people vote the same way. And so you really don't see that playing out. And so now you actually have a situation for A16Z where from a legal perspective, the best thing possible happened. Um, they voted in the way that they thought was good for who knows who it is, whether it's itself, Uniswap, whoever it is. And then they have a ton of folks to whom they delegated tokens who voted against them. I'll go on and bet to say that A16Z will not 
stop delegating those tokens to those who voted against them. And now what you have is A16Z sitting there saying, we can own a lot of tokens. We can't win every governance vote. And by the way, um, our method of decentralizing votes is actually effective because here you go, you can actually see that people are not going to vote in the way that we want them to. They're going to vote in the way that they want them to. And to me, that's like, frankly, like a massive win for A16Z. It is a great precedent. I'm sure they're going to bring this up forever now as like, here's the proof that, you know, when we own 10% of a token supply, we are actually a, you know, an honest participant in governance. We don't control governance. Uh, if people don't like what we want to do, they're going to vote against us. So I agree with you as, as a precedent. It's great. I, I don't believe that's what they intended with this uh, because of course they, they lost a lot of brand value, but they did gain some sort of legal precedent value that is going to you know be a, a useful defense in the future. But ultimately, like the reason, like, I mean, one question you might ask is like, how did we end up here? Like, why? First of all, why is AC&Z delegating to all these student groups, right? Which are like, you know, I was I was chatting with uh, I was chatting with somebody at Jump who was telling me, you know, when they were when they were like trying to get a feel for what was going on in this governance vote, and they were talking to all these student groups that that of course have been delegated a bunch of tokens, not just from AC&Z, but from all sorts of different funds, um, and you know these these are these are basically kids. Right, they're like they're like you know twenty twenty one like twenty two. They 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 just joined blockchains because they thought NFTs were cool, and now they're managing you know uh, tens of millions of dollars worth of stake to manage one of the most important protocols in crypto. Why did this like why why is this happening, right? And the reason why this is happening is that basically there have been lawsuits against uh, uh, VCs that owned a bunch of tokens, claiming that they are engaged in a common enterprise with the founders of a protocol. And so seeing these lawsuits, you know, whether or not these lawsuits were successful, just seeing this civil litigation, uh, saying like, okay, well, we need to lower our risk and make it look like we're not affiliates or we're not involved directly in the day-to-day running of the protocol. We own quite a bit of tokens. It could sway a vote. So let's instead delegate. Okay, who are we going to delegate to? Well, who are the most unobjectionable people that we can get a bunch of them? They are very, you know, they have great brand names. They look really great. We can have this wonderful educational story. Ah, the student groups. And we can delegate to Stanford and to Harvard and to Princeton. It looks so great. Everybody looks, uh, everybody looks wonderful. We also create a bit of a hiring pipeline for ourselves. And, and we end up here where basically a bunch of kids are deciding, you know, one of the most important uh, governance questions of the day. And, it, and this is going to be looked at by everybody as like, wow, this is a great precedent to follow. You should do what A6Z did and also delegate to student groups. And, and at the end of the day, where you end up, is it, it, it feels a little bit to me like the Ukidao situation, which is that individually, these, all these decisions looked very rational at the time, but they end up in this completely irrational place that basically Uniswap is governed by like 20 year olds. And that, that, that feels like not, you know, if you had a holistic legislative approach to how do you think on-chain governance should be done, you would not say like, oh, you are liable for decisions that a DAO makes, you know, if you vote once ever, which is the Ukidao uh, suggestion, right? Like if the DAO votes once ever to do something illegal, Everybody who ever voted in governance on anything, no matter how mundane, is also jointly liable, right? That ends you up in a very strange place. In the same way, like this civil litigation that's been brought against VCs has resulted in this weird thing that we're now all doing. And every VC, you know, ourselves included, is pushed in this direction because all the legal precedent, every single lawyer we talked to is going to tell us, yeah, don't, don't vote your own tokens. That's a crazy thing to do. You should do what ACCZ did. And delegate. Look, look at this. Look at this Uniswap thing. Everyone's going to remember this. If you delegate to student groups, they will vote against you. Sometimes that is a a fig leaf of true decentralization 
but it, it ends you in a place that doesn't actually end up, I think, in good governance, which is not to say that, you know, anything against, you know, Michigan Blockchain Club or whatever, I'm sure they're great, but it it, it does feel like, hey, shouldn't it be the people who have the, the, the most obvious interest in protecting the interest in this protocol uh, or who know the most about it, who should be governing it as opposed to a bunch of student groups? But, you know, this is where the equilibrium has landed. I'll make two points, Asim. First, you know, I feel like you're being a little bit ageist. Um, <laughs> you know, okay, I feel like right, you've right. never read Ender's Game, okay? It's possible these quote-unquote kids, as you speak, are really the best pilots of decentralized protocols. Better possible, than you. Possible. Okay, okay, so okay. okay. I, I wouldn't neg on, you know, the student groups. And second, I'll just throw out there that, you know, Uniswap and almost every other token that does governance is actually a fork of the compound governance token and voting system um, at, at some degree. And when, you know, I was involved in, you know, helping to design the compound governance token, the concept of delegation was actually really core um, for anyone who's like a solidity, you know, buff, you know, the compound governance code base, you know, has delegation built into the token itself, not, you know, some layer on top, but like the actual token itself allows you to specify who you want to vote on your behalf. And this was actually incredibly important to the original design thinking of this, being that, you know, individual token holders, you know, won't want to pay attention to every single vote. They won't want to participate themselves directly. They'll likely serve the protocol best by delegating to someone who considers themselves a specialist in paying attention to governance. And even if student groups aren't like, the perfect governance participants, I still think they're far better than token holders that don't want to pay attention at all and don't want to vote at all. I think it's a significant improvement to at least create an ecosystem where people can just say, oh, you know, I want to delegate to that student group because at least they're like talking about this in a classroom, you know, on a Saturday night and paying attention to it so I don't have to pay attention to it. Um, and I actually think this is like a really powerful concept that, yeah, maybe one day it's not student groups. Maybe one day it's like the crypto equivalent of like ISS who like, you know, has analysts who like really dig into every single possible vote and like publishes an opinion piece and recommends, you know, some sort of outcome for it. So I, I think it's only going to get better. I, I agree with that. I think MakerDAO delegation, like the MakerDAO delegates, I think are a good example of a very mature set of delegates that have very strong opinions and, you know, it's not... I think that's where all these protocols, as they mature, are going to move towards is having more and more sophisticated people to delegate to and kind of more well-defined conversations taking place um, that are not behind closed doors. But going back to the original thing uh, and, and sort of Chris Black and a lot of other folks who look at this whole kind of uh, circus and say, isn't this all a sham? Uh, and isn't proof of stake just you know a cabal of rich people who actually own what's really going on? Tom, what's your what's your take on this on this attack? Well, I think it's also it goes back to like what's really at stake here. Like this is not a layer one, and I think like the security of proof of stake and layer ones has sort of been you know discussed ad nauseum. Here, it, it's really more you know, hey, at some point there will be something actually extremely valuable to govern here. You know, there will be sort of this like you said, large group of different stakeholders, maybe professional delegates, and so it's like, yeah, maybe we're role playing a little bit right now, but that's kind of how you actually get to the end stage is. You know, it's like a startup. You you role play a big boy company, and then eventually you become a big boy company, and that's kind of where we're at. <laughs> okay, so Uniswap almost a big boy, 
just a little, just a little, a little more, and maybe one day we'll get there. Yeah. Okay. Well, Mark, um, we're we're a little bit over time, so let's go ahead and, and wrap things. Um, any final thoughts? It's been a pretty fraught week of regulatory and legal action. Where do you think this is all going, and what should we uh, keep an eye out on the near term horizon? Yeah. Um, good question. Uh, I think the answer is like a pretty obvious one, right? It's like, we've got a lot of battles ahead of us. I think that there's like a couple things that I'm particularly paying attention to, because I think they're really, really important. Um, I think the centralized players are things that I'll note that while they feel really important and they are for like adoption, like in terms of on ramps and things like that, they're not really the key things that like I focus on. DeFi to me is like literally the thing that I focus on and like really care about in terms of like winning. And why is that? And simply because like most CeFi players, if you end up having some regulatory regime that isn't great for them, it's going to cost them more. It's going to slow down growth a little bit, but it's like manageable. But when you look at DeFi, it's like so core to what blockchains enable, frankly, other than like Bitcoin, which you could argue is DeFi itself, that if those don't hold up and those become subject to regulatory regimes that just don't work for them, we're going to end up in like a, a really, really bad spot. And so from my perspective, what I'm really looking forward to is seeing like how it is that DeFi holds up here is both from like a technical perspective. Um, again, in terms of like focusing on things like governance, governance minimization, um, and just the technical design that actually makes it more and more censorship resistant. Um, in addition to, frankly, I think like other governance um, regimes that kind of work a little bit better than what we have now, just because they frankly just aren't perfect. And, and basically what's happened is, <laughs> you know, Compound created something that was great three years ago and everybody's gone lazy since then and basically said, let's not evolve too much. Let's rely on this and fork it. And like that actually hasn't been the best thing for the space, not because of where Compound started, frankly, it's just because of what projects have, have actually done. But for me, it's like this big, big focus on on DeFi and really seeing, um, you know, how it is that we can kind of hold off, you know, governments, frankly, uh, against DeFi. Uh, and then the last thing I'll say is just, I still hold out a little hope on legislation. I think it's just like, it's so important. If we look at what's happening in Europe, we actually see that there is reasonable regulation that can actually be applied to a lot of crypto. And we really need something like that in the US. Now, I'm not hopeful for that. Your question was like short term and short term, I want to see DeFi win. Um, but if we look a little bit longer, I just have like hope for, for legislation that I think is like vital um, to actually kind of keep the momentum that we have in the space. Yeah. And Mark, I know you've been a champion of, of DeFi. You were a chief legal officer at DYDX back in the day. And, and now, of course, at Polygon, you're continuing the fight on the at a sort of higher level of abstraction than a single DeFi protocol. But the, the one thing I will say before we sign off is that, you know, I'm, I'm spending a lot of my time in Asia these days, and Asia is actually quite a different story than what you're seeing in the U.S. I think for a lot of the folks I know back in the U.S., they, they sort of see this kind of curtain descending over crypto. Um, that's not the way that every country is approaching crypto. Actually, a bunch of countries around the world, I sort of thought that there would be this coordinated kind of, you know, blitzkrieg from every single regulator and every single lawmaker to, after FTX, to say, okay, this industry is done, shut it all off. Let's let's try to choke it. But if you look at you know Hong Kong, uh, which you know obviously you know China banned crypto two years ago, and all of a sudden Hong Kong is starting to open themselves up back to digital assets, try to establish themselves as a new 
digital assets hub and lure some of the companies that went over to Singapore back to Hong Kong. Singapore is continuing to compete for, for, for that talent. Uh, you've got Japan actually opening up to crypto. South Korea has never gone anywhere. Um, and a huge part of where crypto is happening is outside the U.S. And as you mentioned, in Europe, they have you know, relatively sane approaches toward crypto legislation. And so I think you know, SAM, SBF, FTX, all that stuff really hit home in the U.S. And of course, SAM being an American, despite the fact that most of the FTX customers were non-U.S., um, and most of the money loss obviously was non-U.S., um, the story really hit home in America. And I think that we're going to see a strong backlash, not necessarily a legislative one, but particularly, you know, Gensler, it seems like is going to be leading that, that, that war path for as long as he's continuing to maintain that seat. But globally, the picture is not quite as, as dark. And I think that's uh, an important note for me to share, just given that I've been spending a lot of time here in Asia. Um, and I expected to see that people would have the same attitude as they seem to have in the U.S., but, but they really don't. There's a lot of positivity here. So um, there's, there's, you know, crypto is a global story. It's not just about what's happening in the U.S., although it's a lot of what we talk about on the show. So anyway, uh, with that, we got to sign off. Thank you, Mark. Hopefully uh, we don't have to have you back on anytime soon because there won't be as much legal troubles. But if there is, we will give you a ring. Uh, but thanks for coming on. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.